This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This A's Cast download is brought to you by Link Soul. Go to LinkSoul.com and by Nest Bedding. Love where you sleep. Go to NestBedding.com. From baseball's top personalities. The Hall of Famer, one of the great TV broadcasters, Bob Costas is here on A's Cast Live. To the A's legendary players. Five-time Major League Baseball home run champ, Mark McGuire is with us here. You never know what stories you're going to hear. We used to come out here to lunch and run with our shirts off. <laughs> you would say. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Coming up on A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend, we got some guys that know a lot about the playoffs. How about a World Series hero in Luis Gonzalez? Another World Series hero in Jeff Blum and a guy who's covering the World Series and the playoffs for ESPN, Doug Glanville. But we all know one of the biggest hits in baseball history, Luis Gonzalez threw out the first pitch in Arizona for Game 3 of the World Series down in the Valley of the Sun. Love having him on the program. Once again, here is Luis Gonzalez. Gonzalez. Well, everybody knows here on A's Cast Live, we've been giving the snakes all the love we possibly can. Our man, Tori Lavello, we're rooting on Arizona. So why not bring on an absolute Diamondback legend? You all know him as the World Series champion. The all-star Luis Gonzalez is with us from the ballpark right now. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. So you know what it's like to be in a tough series. I mean, obviously, I mean, Philadelphia right now, I mean, the other guy gets paid too. I mean, it's like, it's incredible how well they have played. They're firing all in all cylinders. But I got to think now getting back to Arizona, it's going to be rally. It's going to be rowdy in the Valley of the Sun tonight. Yeah, I mean, two tough games for us in in, uh, Philly. Just a hostile environment. Our guys weren't able to overcome over there and, uh, they were very much looking forward to this game here uh, this afternoon here at the ballpark here at Chase Field. Well, the one thing a lot of people may not have paid attention to, but just talk about how good the Diamondbacks have been at home this year. Yeah, we've played well at home. And, you know, I think the big key for us is just getting out of the gates early. We fell behind in those two games. Uh, the first two series that we played in against Milwaukee and again against the Dodgers, we got to early leads. And I think for us, that's what helps Kind of a mix of young guys on our team, and we have some veteran players. But if we can get out to an early lead, that's really going to help us, uh, especially in today's game. Well, you know, you want to talk about crazy series. I mean, the World Series you won against the Yankees, that thing was so dramatic, so back and forth. So you can have all this momentum happen in one city, in one ballpark, but it can dramatically change once you come back home. Yeah, and we saw that yesterday. I mean, the Astros went out and – playing on the road and they ended up winning the game for us. We're going to have to flip the script and try to, to win a home game here. But, uh, you know, being down two games to nothing, if you can win game three, it, it really makes people start thinking about it. Just as uh, Texas Rangers, we thought we're in command of that series. Then they uh, lose yesterday. 
to the Houston Astros. And now you're like, oh, maybe the Astros aren't dead in the waters like everybody thought. You know, when you think about a team growing up and a team growing right in front of your eyes, we talked to you earlier this year on this program, and obviously the Dodgers were running away with it. How much have you seen this grown? And how much have you seen this team grow? And talk about the growth that you've seen with this ball club. Oh, it's been great. I mean, we have uh, arguably probably the guy who's going to win the rookie of the year unanimously. And then uh, he's probably going to get some MVP votes. He's just been a diamond in the rough, man. This guy has been a star ever since he got up here to the big leagues. We've got some great young players, Alec Thomas, Moreno behind the plate. These guys are really getting a chance now to shine and play on the national spotlight and to go along with some of our veteran guys, our Christian Walkers, our Guriels, Tommy Pham, who we picked up in a trade. These guys have all done extremely well for us, but uh, this is an accelerated year for us. We weren't expected to be here at the start of the season. We probably thought we were going to get here maybe next year or the year after, but to be where we're at right now and to win, you know, the, the wild card series and then to win that first uh, series against the Dodgers to get here to the National League Championship Series has been a true, truly blessed. Uh, we're not saying it's over, yeah. but to get to this far right now, it's really been a, a positive year for our organization. Well, Tori Lovello came on this program and I, I wrote it down on this swing and A's here because he told us love, trust, commitment, effort. Those four things are what the Diamondbacks are built on. So I wrote it on the back of this to always remind myself that's not about analytics. Just talk about the clubhouse, the organization. When you start talking about being built on love, trust, commitment, and effort. Yeah, and he's he's the guy who leads by example. I mean, he's the guy that uh, has the pulse of the team. Uh, he's our leader, and I think all the young guys have really bought into everything that he's talked to them about. And uh, getting that trust from spring training, the first day of spring training, into believing uh, the process, trust the process of what they're going to come up with and what they're going to do. And it's really worked out well with a bunch of our young players and some of the veteran guys have really bought into it. Not only that, but... You know, I talked about Corbin Carroll earlier, being yeah. a young guy, he hustles every ball out. And what that does is it motivates a lot of the older guys on the team and gets them fired up to go out there and play well. When's the last time you've seen a guy that size so explosive? Well, I, I think Altuve is the only small guy that you would think of with the power and the, and, and the excitement that he brings to the game when he won the most valuable player. You look at his size and you go, wait. Wait a minute, you're taking aback, but I mean, this is a new generation. You look at him, he's pretty built up. He's a stocky guy, but he's, you know, he's not 6'2 or anything like that, but uh, he gets it done, man, and he plays the game the right way. He goes out there and has a lot of fun, and it's great to come around here now, walk around the valley in the state of Arizona, and to see a lot of number seven jerseys around here now. Brandon Fought going tonight, obviously has to pitch well against a team that is hotter than uh, – it's amazing the numbers just show how hot. I want to give a lot of credit to Brent Strom. What he's been able to do, it's like everywhere he goes, he changes the staff, he changes the pitchers. It's more than just physical. So much of it's about the mental game. One of the reasons why this team is where they are is because Strom is so good as a pitching coach. Talk about what you've seen there. Yeah, he's one of the best in the business. And I think when he goes out there and touches, especially a lot of our young players, uh, they know that he's got the credentials that go with it. And 
I mean, you look at some of the, the pitchers that he's had in the past and uh, the numbers that they've been able to put up and the awards that they've been able to win. I think he's earned that trust from a lot of our pitchers, and it carries over to those guys. Every time he speaks, everybody's listening. You know, velocity plays so much in the postseason. It's unbelievable, especially out of your starters. You guys back in the day had a couple guys that threw pretty hard coming out there, and Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling. Uh, just talk about the advantage that you have when – yeah, you want your, your your bullpen guys to come in and blow smoke, but when you have that smoke coming from the very start of the game, what kind of advantage is that? Well, it's good. I mean, I, the big thing, too, to go along with the velocity is location, especially when you're facing a team like the Phillies that uh, from top to bottom, they swing the bat extremely well. They take advantage of mistakes. And I think for a guy like today, for a guy like Brandon Fott, he's got to keep the ball down in the strike zone. He's got good velocity, but he's got to keep it down. If he starts elevating that fastball, the later innings uh, that goes on, he's been known to give up the, the long ball now and then. And when you're facing a team that hits a lot of home runs, you got to be very cautious out there and not make mistakes. On the flip side of that, what was it like for you as a hitter when you knew they had four or five guys down there that all, uh, that all blew smoke? Well, you try to jump on them early and get some runs because you don't know how they're going to come in. And you're right. When those guys are throwing gas and they're coming in there and being very effective with all their pitches, you want to score some runs early and uh, be able to to kind of establish yourself a little bit. So uh, when those guys come in, if they're tough, you don't have to feel like the pressure's on you to score. Let's end on this. I, I know the Phoenix Suns have been red hot and everybody's fired up about the NBA, but are people like reinvigorated right now with the Arizona Dimebacks and this run that they're on down there in uh, Arizona? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, this is a this is a different type of town. There's a lot of transplants from all over the country that come here to live in Arizona, and uh, we're starting to see a lot of the younger generation kids when their parents moved here. Now, you know, they have kids, and now they're starting to grow up as Arizona Diamondbacks fans, so we're starting to get more support out here. It's been a pretty special year for our club, and hopefully we can go out there and make a series out of this today and try to win game three. Well, you want to talk crazy? We're already talking about spring training tickets and being in Mesa, Arizona in February. We're doing it all show. It's like spring training's right around the corner. It's hard to believe, but obviously you guys got something bigger there. We always appreciate your time. You know how much. Uh, we love having you on the program as somebody who uh, w uh, so accomplished in our game. Uh, good luck to, to the club, and it uh, should be fun to watch and hopefully get a couple victories down there in Arizona. You got it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, we had to look up. 1994. Hit 311. He's a tall shortstop. And he goes from dominating the... Would have been the Pac-10 then. To the no less. You were the Pac-8. Six pack. You weren't the six pack. You're not old enough. Uh, and then oh yeah, I am. And then dominated the Vermont Expos. You hit 344 with an 880 OPS. Your first time with the wood <laughs> bat and pro ball. That's impressive. Thank you. And you got you know what's crazy about that? I was only, I was only three years into my uh, life's life. Uh, my my life as a switch hitter. Really? Yeah. So you were in the mold of back when you know we were. Everybody was trying to find Cal Ripken Jr. again. Everybody wanted the tall <laughs> shortstop, right? 
Do you, A-Rod, all the big guys, they wanted big guys at shortstop. Like, now we're not seeing a whole heck of a lot of that anymore. Like, because back then, being 6'3", 6'2", the people didn't have a problem with that playing short. No, and I'm grateful for that. If if they'd had the issue, uh, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. But, uh, you know, th- all the thanks to Bob Milano and the University of California for giving me the opportunity to play shortstop every day. Uh, I had to earn my spot my freshman year in 92, but I was just learning how to switch hit. So if I had never learned how to switch hit and kept my uh, ability to play shortstop, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. So everything goes back to my roots there at Cal. Yeah, you you have very respectable freshman numbers, too, to come out of high school and uh, put up the numbers that you had. By the way, your Cal football team has won more games than people thought they would so far this year. Yeah, who knew the Pac-12 would be as good as they are right now? Yeah. God, it's so hard to believe that. It is. Everything that's going on that – there's only going to be two teams left and where it goes from here. It uh, Does anybody, because I know in those neck of the woods where you are now, I mean, they're still starting to get used to like, wait a minute, we're not going to have Texas, Oklahoma, Red River shootout anymore. They're going to be in the SEC. People in Houston have kind of gotten you because I know A&M's not too far, that they're in the SEC. Are, are people in Texas starting to get used to this? Because they people back in, back in the day – when they were the Southwestern Conference, they hated the SEC. Now they're all in mm-hmm. the SEC. No, that's the crazy thing. And I've, you know, I've had to get a crash course in what's going on out here with Texas football, just because uh, being on the West Coast, uh, it's a different vibe and a different, uh, you know, mentality. But at the same time, you know, I think AM, since being in the SEC, had talked a lot of trash on, the, you know, UT and Oklahoma and, and, you know, the Baylors and the TCUs out there saying, oh, we're in the tougher conference. You guys would never compete up here. And now all of a sudden, with all this shifting, uh, A&M is going to have to deal with the UT and the OU. But uh, like you said, you know, some of these rivalry games will now become conference games, which is kind of crazy to think about. So we we don't, we, as you know, we have Eno Saris on this program every single week, and we don't try and be like the smartest show. But I got to tell you, I think we've kind of cracked something because there's in recent years, and it really started with the A's and Moneyball and Billy Bean, this whole mm-hmm. what we do in the regular season, it doesn't work in the postseason, the postseason's a crapshoot. And I, I, we've kind of cracked it going, no, it's the other way around. When you're using the Atlanta Braves have the best record in baseball and they use 53 players, you have the Angels use – we've been joking because we got this Shohei Otani thing. We got the – I still <laughs> I still got a rally monkey here. Um, they use 66 players. The regular season has become so random with the amount of players in the line. The postseason, as you know, as a World Series champion, as a hero, is you zero in. It's the best players. It's your best pitchers. It's really your best effort. The regular season is you're using so many guys, you're 40 man, so many players. That to me is the randomness. We're now, and I think this series right here tells you everything you need to know. There is zero random between the Astros and the Rangers. You guys know everything. We know everything about you guys. You guys mm-hmm. know everything about each other. There's no randomness. Uh, just talk about that because they've been trying to sell like, oh, postseason. I don't know. It's just a bunch of luck. I'm saying my ass. These teams know each other. This is the best of the best. You're getting the best version of the Astros. You're getting the best version of the Texas Rangers. Same thing with Philly and Arizona. 
No, I agree with you on that. And that's what's kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, we keep hearing, uh, you know, there has to be an adjustment with this wild card round gives that, uh, you know, gives that first round by to the division winners with the best record. It's too much time off. They don't know how to adjust. And all I keep hearing when I keep hearing that noise is that's an excuse for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Why can't we watch the Dodgers more often? And I feel like they haven't been able to adjust to that. But if you go back and look at the history of how well they've played in this inside that division, what have they done in the postseason? They've played well enough and had and been analytically sound to be able to win as many games as possible. But like you were just saying, when you get into the postseason, what happens then? Because the Astros are a team that was built to be able to win during the regular season, but they also do a very good job of winning in the postseason. And I think that's where you start to create that separation from analytics and you start to turn to that baseball side that I think you're talking about with the Texas Rangers and the Houston Astros. Just in the sense that you create that, you know, that familiarity and you create uh, these books on each other where you have, you know, their tendencies, you know, what's going to happen later in the game. Bruce Bochy knows Dusty Baker as well as Dusty Baker knows Bruce Bochy. And that's kind of the fun of the game is realizing how they're going to use their bullpens, who's going to come off the bench. But at the same time, these are two teams that have set lineups, maybe one or two pieces like an Evan Carter out there in left field that moves out for a Robbie Grossman with a left-handed starter. Or you've got a Chaz McCormick or a Mauricio Dubon that comes in depending on who's on the mound for the Astros. But other than that, it's pretty straightforward with what's going on, and they're strong enough and knowledgeable enough to know how these matchups are going to work. And I think that's what makes it most fun for me when you do get it this late into the postseason into a championship series is that you have that familiarity, but how do you work through that to be able to beat the team? And right now the Texas Rangers have figured out the Astros. You're the perfect guy to bring on about this because we have so many different guests, and I can't ask them about what it's like to win a World Series. Well, with you, you went to the pinnacle in college baseball. You played in the College World Series at Cal. You won the World Series with the Chicago White Sox. Did, did you get the feeling in those years, it doesn't matter where we play. It doesn't matter what the schedule is. I don't care where you play, what time of day you want to play, what stadium, what part of the state, what time zone. You bring it, we're going. Tell people – because all this noise and excuses when, when, when you're like the, the Chicago White Sox, did you feel like and we'll take on anybody, anywhere, anytime, any stadium, let's rock? That That is what you can't put into an algorithm is that idea right there of getting 25 to 26 guys to buy in and understand that when the bell rings and that first pitch of the game is happening, that all of a sudden doesn't matter where we came from, who we liked, who we don't like, all of a sudden, we are in that batter's box with each other. We are on that mound with each other. We're making that play in center field, and we're all going to high-five you when you come off the field because we dislike the opponent that much more than we dislike everybody in our own clubhouse <laughs> that we're going to go out there and try and destroy you. And that was kind of the uniqueness of the Chicago White Sox is that you get on the plane, and there would be seven or eight factions you know, having a good time, whether it be radio, playing cards, drinking, telling stories, or just hamming it up. But once that game started and once you put on that Chicago White Sox uniform, we just went out there and played like we were meant and molded and, you know, just welded together to go out there and be this well-tuned machine. But you're right in the sense that 
um, you know, we, we ran through uh, Boston pretty good in that first round. They were the reigning World Series champions from the year before, uh, took them in three, and then we had a pretty substantial break before the Angels came in, and they, they kicked us in the teeth, actually, in that first game of this championship series, and then we proceeded to watch our pitching staff go out there and throw four complete games, three of, or two of them being, in, or three of them being in Anaheim. So, it, what, like what you're is saying, that? it just didn't matter. What is that? What? What is that? <laughs> that's that's Ozzy Gian going up to his starting rotation and going, boys, I'm going to ride you as long. It sounds terrible. Ride, ride you as long and, and as hard as I can till we win this series. And what our pitching staff did is it just went out there and threw 130 pitches yeah. until our offense scored enough runs to win. And we walked away. It, it, I mean, it's crazy to think that it was, you know, what, 18 years ago. And that was the mentality was just force our rotation to pitch as long as they possibly could. And then four straight complete games, we're back in the World Series and absolutely obliterate the Astros in that in that series. And your pitching pit, your starters. I mean, Cody, what's the record right now? Six six innings or more right now if your starting pitcher goes in the postseason? Twelve and three. Twelve and three. I mean, as much as we want to obviously home runs are great. Thank you for that. Home runs are great. Velocity of the bullpen's great. All of that's great, but you need to get innings from your starters. It's tried and true. You gotta get it. It makes your bullpen so much better. And that's something that we saw, obviously, the year that we won in 2005. But how about last year in 2022 with the Astros? Their rotation was stacked. They mm -hmm. pitched six innings. And all of a sudden, you only had to go out there and get nine outs. And, I mean, that, that alleviates a lot of pressure on that bullpen and allows those arms to be fresh. Even if they're throwing 15 pitches a night, it still allows them to go out there and be relatively fresh, especially in a postseason. Can you imagine – being able to blow your bullpen out for two days, have a day off, blow them out for a couple more days, have that day off. I mean, this really sets up in the postseason for the teams that are able to extend their starters and use their bullpen wisely to go out there and win some championships. 0-2 at home, heading on the road in a best of seven, normally means you're done. But for the Houston Astros, as Cody's been joking the whole time, Astros got them right where they want them. Like I, I, I <laughs> he's right. It's like historical this year how bad the Astros have been at home. I mean, they won almost every game against the Rangers at Globe Life. So it's like, folks, this series is far from over because you tell me why is it can't win at home and they're beast on the road. It's crazy to me, and I, I wish I could explain it because we've actually put up plenty of numbers where I think they're scoring a run more on the road as opposed to at home. But the crazy thing about being at home is everybody wants to point to the offense. They say the batter's eye is too small. They can't see. They're not able to you know, score runs. They're trying to hit too many home runs at home. Um, and, but on the other side of the coin is the pitching staff has been terrible at home too. So you, it's not a one-sided thing. This is a full, a full team effort to be that bad at home. And they're, they're one of the few division winners that are, go out there and win a division with a losing record at home. And I think I heard a number the other day that said, <laughs> nobody's gone to the world series with a losing record at home. And the Astros are trying to accomplish that. But to your point about, uh, you know, Arlington, 13 and three, the Astros are at that ballpark in the last two years, and they are six and one this season at that ballpark. And they're going in there after the last time they were in there for three games, they scored 39 runs and held the Texas Rangers to 10 runs. And granted, that was without Josh Young. Jonah Heim came out of that uh, middle of that series with uh, a wrist injury, I believe. 
and now you've got everybody at full strength, it's going to be a little bit different. But the first thing, I don't know if you guys heard any of Dusty's uh, press conference today, but one of the things that kind of slipped through the cracks and that nobody really jumped on is that he said, my boys see the ball great here. And that was the one thing that jumped out to me is that kind of feeds the narrative back home where the Astros, there's a lot going on behind the center field wall. The batter's eye isn't as big as everybody wants it to be. And then they get on the road and they see the ball better. And all of a sudden they go out and start to rake. But I think it's a combination of Rangers pitching staff and being able to see that ball better. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, you go and win that first game, and then all of a sudden that narrative now, the belief that, hey, we can we can <laughs> smoke these guys here. And if I'm looking at it from the Astros' perspective, you basically have had four pitchers for the Rangers dominate the innings. You've had Montgomery, you've had Avaldi, you've had LeCurk and Spores. Now, mm-hmm. you, now you're going to have three straight games. Bruce Bochy is going to have to dip into the other parts of that pitching staff I think for, you know, if we're looking at keys to the game, get to these other guys that haven't pitched for the Astros, and that can play well for you because, you know, Bochy really doesn't want to use those guys. No, you're 100% correct. I mean, that's something that, you know, everybody here in Houston has been barking about is that it's paramount to knock the starter out as soon as possible because you name those guys, you know, Spores has been good, LeClerc has been good in the in that bullpen, but that's two guys out of seven or eight guys in that bullpen. You know, you got to force Bochi's hand to go to somebody else in that bullpen. We did see Aroldis Chapman pitch well in game one, but obviously he showed up quick enough in game two when he gave up that home run to Jordan Alvarez, and it almost felt like it almost felt like uh, Bochi was trying to force Chapman into the situation just to kind of break the seal and see where he's at. And as soon as he gave up that home run, he popped out of the dugout, brought him out of the game because he didn't want Aroldis to lose that game. So he's still kind of questionable on him. But I agree with you in the sense if they're able, and that's where I'm kind of curious about Scherzer and John Gray in this series being added to that roster. Um, we don't know how far they've been stretched out. They haven't pitched in a competitive game middle of September how are they going to react to the situation and what happens if the Astros actually get to those guys then what and once you start getting Bochi you know trying to get that big old body and that skull out of that dugout to go back and forth from from the mound to the dugout that's where you create issues for the Rangers and that's where the Astros have to capitalize by knocking starters out quickly everybody talks about Bochi's just different as a communicator as a leader you played for him What's it like playing for him? I, I loved it. Uh, you know, he, he's a he's a motivator, but he's also he's got a sense of humor about him. He's got a humility about him. Uh, you know, he was a guy who was a backup catcher who had flashes of brilliance throughout his big league career and, you know, had to really grind things out, but became a student of the game, but never lost that sense of what it was like to be a player. And that's where I appreciated him for my time in San Diego because he was notorious. He wouldn't come up to you and say, you know, you had an idea what your role was on the team, but Boach would come over and go, hey, you know, I've got a set infield blummer. I know you can play all four infield positions. These guys are going to need days off. Guys are going to get hurt. Just stay ready, and I'll, I'll get you in there. I'll find a way to get you in there. And what Boach did that was so good for me and some of these guys that are on the peripheral, you know, on the bench and role players, is the fact that he was able to put me in there, uh, you know, in blowouts. If we were blowing a team out or if we were getting blown out, he'd fire me out there for two at-bats and, you know, just to make sure I was staying fresh. 
if he knew I was uh, there was a starting pitcher in that series, he would come to me before the series. He'd be like, I know your numbers against this guy. You're going to be playing against him. So he was he was adamant about staying up to date and keeping everybody fresh and giving, you know, regulars days off, giving some role players some opportunities to put up numbers. But that's where I think Boach was really good. And, uh, you know, we were spoiled in uh, San Diego. We had a pretty good starting rotation, you know, led by Jake Peavy. And then we had Trevor Hoffman closing things out. So it was very routine oriented. But at the same time, I think Bochy understands what those roles mean for guys as far as preparation. And that's how guys got better. You don't have probably any questions why he's been successful in San Diego, got him to a World Series in 98, won three titles in San Francisco, and has another chance now. He's two games away from getting another franchise to the World Series. I mean, as someone who played for him, it probably doesn't surprise you at all. No. And you know what? I had a chance to, you know, speak with Chris Young, who was a teammate with me on San Diego, who played under, you know, Boach. And uh, they have a great relationship. But I thought it was really interesting because the first thing I wanted to know, you know, but why is Bochi getting back in this thing? <laughs> yeah. This day and age with the analytics, the old school and the grind of travel and, you know, the way this game is is, is being played these days, why would he want to come back into this mix? And even why would Chris Young want to bring one of these old school guys back? And uh, I thought it was really interesting in talking to Chris Young when he says, you know, Bochi had some time off to really kind of recharge the batteries, kind of, you know, give the body a tune-up. And I think once that body started to feel a little bit better, the mind starts to react, the heart feels a little bit better, and you miss the competition. And he got him back in the dugout. And I think it's really starting to feed on these guys where they're starting to, you know, feel the vibe of Boach. And when you have three World Series championships under your belt and you come into a situation like the Texas Rangers Clubhouse, why wouldn't you look up to that and respect that and want to play hard for a guy who has been to the peak three times? You would want to play behind that guy. All right, so we know the Astros are not out of this. They they excel on the road, but you got to give the Rangers a lot of credit. They have not lost in the postseason. They've outscored their opponents 39 to 16, and so much of their damage has been done by 7-8-9. I mean, this entire lineup, <laughs> just talk about what you've seen, especially here watching the postseason, Evan Carter made his debut against the A's, and we were like, hey, this kid. I mean, they – Oh, man. And, and the young count comes back at third base. Just one through nine, this is no day at the beach. I mean, everybody can swing it. No, shoot, the toughest guy in this lineup in this two, these first two games has been Laody Tavares, the nine-hole hitter. I think they've gotten him out maybe twice. I think it's actually once. Um, and he's got a home run in the series already, and uh, he's played extremely well. But like you said, you know, this lineup is stacked one through nine. Um, and I th it, it's reminiscent of lineups that I've seen in the past for the Astros where you cannot take a break. And kind of what you're seeing with the Baltimore Orioles, what you're kind of seeing with the Astros is so much of the emphasis is on one through six and even, you know, one through four, because the two guys that I want to be able to control and not let beat me are going to be the be Corey Seager and Adolis Garcia. Those guys absolutely mash. They drive the ball out of the ballpark. They're high RBI guys. And the Astros 
have actually done a very good job of containing both those guys, holding them to base hits, keeping them inside the ballpark, and that should be a re you know a remedy to win ball games. But at the same time, like you're saying, you've got Josh Young who's been pushed down in that lineup. Jonah Himes down there, he hit a big home run the other day, and then Laoti Tavares. We can't seem to get that guy out. But when you have seven, eight, nine going well, you're playing with fire because when those guys are on base and you start to turn it over to a Marcus Simeon. Corey Seager and some of these other guys, Mitch Garver, who's been swinging the bat well, then you're putting yourself in some serious uh, issues. And I think that's why uh, the Astros starting pitching, you know, granted, Justin Verlander did a great job, but Framber Valdez could not find himself way, couldn't find his way through that lineup because those guys at the bottom of the order were doing so well. And he wasted so many pitches trying to get through those one, two, three, four in the top part of the order. Uh, they're doing a good job. Philly is amazing. Just everything going on with them right now, right? I mean, it's just they're my, my word for them is relentless. The crowd's yeah. relentless. The team's relentless. You throw that first pitch over, they're looking to take you out of the yard. I mean, they are just on you constantly. Uh, you're a former D-back. Uh, I, I thought them scoring a couple runs there and making it close, that, that that's good for them. How big is tonight for – Arizona not going home down 0-2? Um, I think it always is. You know, you want to develop a little bit of momentum and everybody talks about happy flights. If you can get onto that plane with a split on the road in a place like Philadelphia, like you're talking about, where you're playing against a team that's absolutely possessed right now, playing great baseball, and then you have the fan atmosphere on top of it. If you can scratch out one win on the road in Philadelphia, uh, it sets up beautifully for that championship series if you're able to win three games at home in front of your fans, in your own environment, sleeping in your own bed kind of thing, the exact opposite of what the Astros are trying to do. But the Diamondbacks have a chance to really you know, spoil that homestand for the Phillies if they're able to sneak those two, one of those two games and kind of set up for what they're able to do at home because that team's kind of built more for that AstroTurf, big gaps, speed game, play good defense, and use that pitching uh, to play well at home. So yeah, I think it's paramount that they have to go out there and win because nobody wants to go home 0-2, uh, you know, especially against a team that was in the World Series last year. So you talk about the experience where the Diamondbacks don't have that experience. I think they'd really like to be tied up 1-1 going home without some of these guys having that experience because there is going to be a certain level of comfort playing in front of the faithful in Phoenix. I have this note for you, and I want you to think of all your old hitting coaches from the time you were a kid – all the oh way through the big leagues. The Phillies have swung at 57.9% of first pitches in the zone this postseason, the highest rate of any team in October, and I bet that's the highest ever. 57.9%. You throw it in the zone, they're not waiting to get down 0-1, How many of your hitting coaches would have flipped out First pitch, you roll over it, ground it out. First pitch, you pop it up. <laughs> How many times do they tell you do not swing at the first pitch, and yet the Phillies are doing the exact opposite, which basically – Every hitting coach forever has told you to do. <laughs> First of all, that number's ridiculous. Right? I mean, that, that's that's incredible. Um but how about how about the fact that 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 number right there is sitting there staring at every pitcher? that comes into the game against the Philadelphia Phillies. So what does that tell me? That either tells me I've got to throw something absolutely filthy on the first pitch so that they don't, you know, absolutely obliterate it, 
Or on the other hand, I've got to be just on the edge. I can't make a mistake here, right here. And guess what happens? I try to be a little bit too fine and I leave it out over the plate and it gets hammered. I think there's an, there's a certain level of intimidation knowing that when these guys dig in, they've got a toehold looking to do damage. But I also like the idea, you know, and I did have a lot of pitching coaches that said, you know, the first pitch may not be the first, the best pitch of the at bat. So be patient, work the count. You'll get something later in the count. That was always the mentality. And we had a situation the other day, a Roldis Chapman came in and Alex Bregman swung at the first pitch fastball and popped up and everybody in the stadium went, Oh, you know, what is he doing? Be patient. You but know, Altuve does it and hits it out. And everybody's like, that's awesome. Well, two batters later, Jordan Alvarez takes a slider first pitch and hits it 420 yeah. feet. And we're like, yeah, that a boy, you know, so it's like, <laughs> damned if you do damned if you don't kind of thing but uh you know there is something to be said when you do get into the postseason you're obviously facing better pitching so i like the idea of kind of being ready to hit early on because sometimes with some of these pitchers that you're facing like a zach gallon or some of the, you know a spencer strider and some of these guys they they look to get ahead early to take control of the at bat but if you're taking control of the at bat the second you step in and put in that pitcher on the on his heels you get it's the advantage to the hitter because this guy's scared to death to leave something out of the plate first pitch and i can hammer it all right let's end on this because we will get into this in the off season where we start addressing a lot of different topics and one thing we always get into is hall of fame and i want to talk about a guy that you played with and i know he means a lot to you paul conurco and Mm. i remember i was at candlestick park when paul conurco was (laughs) traded from the dodgers to the reds he walked off the field. Remember old candlestick? He had to walk down the right oh, field man, line. Yeah. All of a sudden, Paul Conurco is walking out of this, and it's like he just got traded. I was there when he was traded. Um, really? 16 years in Chicago, 406 home runs as a White Sox. You look at his entire numbers. You look at his OPS. You look at his OPS+. plus. 18 years in the big leagues, you know him very well. I, you can make a case, wouldn't you say, that Paul Conurco should have a plaque in Cooperstown? hundred uh, percent. And obviously this is going to be heavily biased just because I absolutely love the human being, but you know, but him. you du- played with him. Yes. And I, and I know, I mean, I know what went on underneath in order to get on the field to do, to put up the numbers he was, he was putting up. Um, you know, you think about the 16 years he was in Chicago. He has that World Series title. He's been an all-star. Uh, he was a high average, high on, but he was an OPS guy before OPS even existed. And he actually spoke in those terms. We didn't know what an OPS was, but at the same time, Pauly was a guy that was going out there really. He was studying pitchers. He was studying swings. He made some of them. He made more adjustments to his swing than I think any prolific hitter I've ever been around has. Uh, he would constantly be tinkering in the cage. He would constantly be talking to you about your swing. He would watch your at bats. I mean, he was incredibly cerebral. And he would go out there and put swings on on pitchers that were absolutely filthy in some of the best moments of the, of the game, the key moments in the game. So a lot of the numbers that he put up while he was there in Chicago, where he was the guy year in, year out, every time you faced the Chicago White Sox, there were some good guys that throughout the years, you know, the Maglio Ordonezes, the Carlos Lees, and some of the, you know, the Jermaine Dyes. But he was always the focal point of the White Sox lineup. And he went out there and performed day in, day out, loved playing a first base, didn't want to DH, uh, you know, as least as he as he wanted to, and really did a good job of driving in runs. And one of the things, and just to make everybody love Paul Conurco just a little bit more, is 
uh, when I got traded over there in 2005 from the Padres at the deadline, I show up in uh, Baltimore and to a man, credit to everybody on that roster too, to a man, every one of them came over and shook my hand and said, you're ready to fight. And I said, hell yeah, let's go. Paul Konerka was the guy that was after the game on the flight going back to Chicago. He goes, do you have a place to stay? He goes, do you have a car? And I was like, nope, nope. I go, I'm going to stay at the hotel, whatever the team gives me. And then, you know, I've got to figure it out from there. The second day I was in Chicago, the second day of that homestand, I was a Chicago White Sox. He had me, he had a studio apartment lined up for me and a, and a, and a car dealership giving me a car. So this dude is gold. And I would love to see him be able to be rewarded for working as hard as he did in the city of Chicago for as long as he did by having a plaque made for him. I think he's awesome. He's like the mob. Whatever you need, I got. You need you need a car? Do, hey, you need a place? You need, there, what do you need? There's a reason Paul Konerko's name was the king. And, he, <laughs> you know, we, 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 PK, he was the king. We, we just said, yep, that's the king. And you're exactly right. It was it was so fitting that he wore, the you know, that, that uh, old English socks on his hat. And the connection might have been there. I don't know. I love it. All right, you're the best, <laughs> my friend. And uh, Astros keep winning. Let's talk soon. Hey, I don't care. You know, I can't say I don't care what they do, but I mean, no matter what happens, I would love to be able to well, talk to you World guys Series. Anytime. We got to have you for the World Series. Yeah, I'd love to hang out with that. Yeah, heck yeah. I mean, I'm down. The World Series. The American League West is going to be represented somehow, some way. Technically, the World Series is your time of the year. You're a World Series hero. <laughs> yeah, that's usually when I perk up. Yeah. Uh, has anybody seen my statue? Has anybody seen? I don't have a statue. Yeah, that's the, that's the only thing I don't have hanging behind me. I need, I got to work on that. I'd have I'd have a mini replica like in every room of my house. You know that statue that I have? Yeah. Good stuff, my friend. Well, uh, so let's hook up in the World Series. I look forward to it. Yeah, give me a call. The great Cal Bear. Good luck to your Bears. Continued on football. Appreciate it. Good being on with you. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Let's ask Doug Glanville. He's calling this series. As we say, he's one of the smartest guys in all of baseball. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing real good out here. I'm out in Phoenix and um, on the road, time zones, planes. It's like, uh, you know, like the plane days, man. I feel good. Well, I got to say this. We got to give you some love because been listening to you. Um, a lot of people don't understand that when you're doing radio, that people can't see what you're talking about. Like it's easy, <laughs> right. it's easy when you're doing TV and you go, well, you see the left fielder, he slipped, you saw it, but I mean, <laughs> listening to you, you do a great job of not only explaining the game, 
but you're actually helping explain what is going on. Too many people, as they're driving their car, they don't think about it. Radio is the theater of the mind. You can say anything you want. They got to believe you. I want to commend. I want to commend you on not only how you explain the game, but how you let people know as you're listening what really is going on. You're able to paint that picture. I appreciate that. It's um, you know, it's a adjustment when you first start doing radio this consistently to realize that. You know, you have to paint the picture. You have to describe and have the words and do it in a timely fashion. Uh, and sometimes it's happening with information coming in. You know, you think about instant replay, right? It's like, oh, what, what, you know, I'm trying to figure out what happened. Is he yeah. he's on the base? And so you're trying to get that and synthesize. Um, it helps having John Shambi or my partners, you know, you know, Roxy Bernstein and and many of the others, uh, Dave Jagler. Uh, they they help me a lot too to kind of you know get their eyes on it and share information. But, but um, what's, what I found interesting about radio is you don't, you don't have as much time as I, I kind of think you would have to tell us a lot of stories, like uninterrupted stories, because you can miss the action. So, uh, so you think radio, you're talking more, true, but you also have to be more descriptive uh, because you can't let that pitch go or you have to really make sure. So, um, you know, that part I've really learned how to like put that aside or like figure out how to do it, pause and come back to it. And, um, you know, I feel like it's, you know, worked well, but I, I enjoy it a lot. You get to talk to all the players and the coaches before the game. You just, you can really kind of go any direction uh, once you synthesize all this information pregame uh, to be able to marry it with what happens in the real life action of the game. Well, we're, we're big D-back fans on this show. Tori Lovello's a former A. He comes on this show. I, I have written here on our old swing and A's. Last time Tori was on, he uh, talked about the thing they're built on, love, trust, commitment, and effort. I wrote it on the back of this so I never forget it. We had Luis Gonzalez on yesterday. Uh, Dan Heron's down there. So there's a, there's a little A's yeah. connection, so we're always rooting for the D-backs. And I thought, man. If they, they just got to get back home, they just got to get that one win because they have been pretty good at home this year. Winning in Philly, as we all know now, it's one of the greatest home field advantages we've ever seen in our game. So just talk about how going from Philly, going to Arizona, and seeing Arizona get that walk-off win, what that does to their mojo and what that does to this series. Yeah, well, We certainly talked to Tori Lovello about that before the game. And, you know, he was consistent in what he said about it. He's like, look, you know, it's a narrative shift if you can just get that one win. You know, just the conversation changes. You're not like down 3-0. You're not, you're like, wait a minute, you're kind of in this. Uh, even if you go back to game one, where, you know, started off the Phillies home run, home run, home run, home run. And then it was like a lull. And then the Diamondbacks got like three runs. You're like, wait a minute, this is a game. And it was a game they had no control over for like the first six innings. And then you're sitting there going, they could have stolen that game. So even the games that seem like the Phillies sort of dominated, there's always pockets in there that something could shift one way or the other if you get a couple of hits together and string them together. So I think Tori Lovello knew how to communicate that, look, we just, we're home. It's a whole different stage. There's not, you know, 80,000 Philly fans, you know, they're cheering for you now. Uh, all those things were uh, something that they could tap into to realize that, it's a whole different season coming home now and being able to play uh, on this stage. And they proved it, you know? I mean, what about Brandon fought? I mean, man, yeah. the guy was just lights out. 
So, you know, who, that was a guy that, you know, they're buried for dead. Like, oh, the number three starter, Diamondbacks are done, no chance. I was like, well, he pitched well against the Dodgers. So, you know, you never know. You kind of forget, like, oh, by the way, the Diamondbacks swept the 101-win Dodgers, just wiped them out. So it's like, that that's something, right? I mean, so I think you just can't count anybody out. And uh, the D-backs, you know, their offense wasn't explosive, but it was good enough, and it got, you know, the timely hitting they needed. Yeah, the strategy going tonight, the strategy, I have a problem with it. Uh, and we were, before you got on, my old college coach, Sam Perraro, he's a Hall of Famer here at San Jose State and City of San Jose, won a lot of games, been to the College World Series. He claims to invented the, invented the staffing game because we used to do this all the time. I hate it. Because it just takes one guy to screw it up, right? It takes one guy. It can look good, and then one guy comes in, but that's what we're going to go with. And I know you were probably – I don't know if you could hear us in the back. We were talking about Mass and Bumgarner. Obviously, this is more a Bay Area thing because Bumgarner is such a big deal here. It's like people forget he was supposed to be here. He was supposed to pitch in one of these games, which would have eventually would have pushed fought back to today – and, like, I don't know how much you guys will talk about it. I don't even know how much you've even thought about it. But that's, you know, that's the problem. You know, the D-backs, you start to see the lack of pitching in baseball, like in a game seven you know, or a seven-game series, you start to see teams scrambling just for a four-starter. Yeah, and that's not the – the Phillies don't have that problem. That's no. why they're so dangerous. Um, but, yeah, the look, the ERA of the Diamondback pitchers after – Gallon and Kelly is 5.77. I mean, their starters just, they've been, they've been just like lighting, lighting fires. And, um, but you know, fought just got better and better. I mean, you know, that's the thing and you never know how people will respond, but yeah, they have, you forget they have Zach Davies, they have Kyle Gibson, they have all these other cats, uh, Bumgarner. And if they were like a hundred percent right and they're at their best, that'd be a different thing, but they're not. But once again, the D-backs still won with their third starter. That's baseball. And and they're they're back in it because of you know the quite character that was not written in the script on day one in Brandon Fopp, but he pitched a Fopp pitched a great game, so um, that's why you just don't know. And uh, there's no doubt that the the fact that they are able to uh, gain this win is just a huge confidence boost because now you know you can win all kinds of games if you just execute on the mound. I mean that is critical, no doubt. And when when you talk about Philly. I mean, obviously, you know a lot about it, your college days, your playing days. We always think of Philly as this is the toughest town to play in, right? These are the guys throwing snowballs at, 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 at Santa Claus. They're booing Mike Schmidt, the greatest Philly of all time. But for all that, you talk about Eagles fans and everything, to see when you flip it and they're giving all the love that they can give, when now that you go back as a former player and you look at Citizens Bank and you look at just this home field advantage, have you ever seen anything like it when Philly turns on all the love for the team? <laughs> no, I, I can't say I have. I mean, there's some great fan bases throughout sports, so there's no doubt that they're not alone. But from a baseball standpoint uh, and knowing Philadelphia, I, I've never seen it quite like this. And you know, I didn't. I played for a lot of teams that weren't very good, so that's definitely part of it. But the new ballpark, which opened up in in '04, and then having the '08 teams and the good teams, and now the expectation. And I think I think we're all different as a society, right? You come out of the pandemic, and you know, just things kind of shift a little bit. And and now, you know, Trey Turner is a guy that they wanted over there. Bryce Harper, 
And they were like, said, well, maybe we have an ability to improve a player performance in another way. You know, we're not going to necessarily motivate them in one way by just getting on them. Maybe it is about something else. And they kind of leaned into that. Alec Bohm, you know, guys that responded. And that's the test in and of itself. You get the support, then what do you do with it, right? And Turner turned into this, you know, mega all-star. He was already a great player, but he kind of found it again. And uh, I think it's good to see that there's this versatility of response for Philly fans because I, I felt like there was still plenty of support when I was playing there. You just didn't necessarily get it in mass like that, but you always got it. You know, the fans were great to me, you know, and, and I had a very good relationship. It was always simple to me. First of all, I was a Philly fan as a kid, yeah. so I get it. Um, second of all, I, you know, figured it, it's like, it's all about like playing hard, respecting the game, respecting Philly history. Um, you know, I think if you do all those things and, and you're open about it, I, I think they'll have your back, even if you're not hitting, you know, 375. So, um, it's, it, it was good to see. And I think it was not just good for Turner or Bohm in those moments, but for the whole team to see that they have fan base that really has their back. All right. When you had maybe a time as a Philly where you had a a long offer going, did they ever sing a song to you? Did they ever do anything <laughs> at the at the old vet? Were they singing to you in a long offer back in the day? <laughs> well, I don't know if they were singing, but um, I, you know, I fortunately you know, I had anytime I had like a big offer. Uh, thankfully, there wasn't a ton of those. Yeah. I had enough hits in there because I was always swinging. Uh, I would get the ball. I would stop the game and get the ball. And people were like, oh, is that your 500th hit? No, I'm just one for 21 <laughs> right now, so I'm just getting the ball. So I stopped the game a lot of times, but I confused everybody. So that was always fun to me. But, no, the Philly fans, they, they were good to me. And, and, um, and yes, it was hard at times. Look, I got booed. It's not that I didn't get booed. I, I uh, misread a ball, and Eric Milton's could have been no hitter, and I got booed. And the next, next inning, Troy Hawkins threw a pitch in my head when I was trying to butt. And I ended up on my back, and they cheered for that. And I'm at home. Uh, but I got the butt down, and Burrow got the game-winning hit or someone, and that was it. You know, And I was upset, but I also knew that they were being consistent. There was nothing uh, inconsistent about it. So they get on you, but I think overall I had a good relationship. And you know, I was living downtown in Philadelphia. Fans would stop me and walking across the street, and they, would, they wouldn't just be like, you're terrible. You're great. They'd be just like, Hey, you got to work on tucking your front shoulder. In, okay. Yeah. You got to get that closed. You know, you get your hands, maybe if you put your elbow a little bit higher, I mean, I got hitting lessons from Philly fans uh, in, in downtown Philly. I mean, that's just, that's just Phillies. I love Philly. Philly is a great town. All right. So if you're the Phillies, you know, there has been talk. I mean, it's, you're not going to criticize anything offensively because they've been a juggernaut. Obviously everybody's hitting. I mean, the numbers are off the charts, but, yes, yeah. are you going to remain where Castellanos, Riamuto are more down in the order? Castellanos is historically hot. Do you want to move him up a little bit? How would you do the order knowing that you're probably going to get right, left, right, left? I mean, you're going to see – I mean, in a staffing game, you could see anything. Yeah. Well, we asked Rob Thompson this every day, especially when Castellanos had the four home runs in two games. And he's like – I come down, I just don't want to mess with it. You know, yeah. it's a yeah, regular season. You might look at it differently. Like, okay, game 39. Like, okay, let's just move this guy up. But now when something's working and guys are comfortable and in the rhythm and you don't want to seem like you're panicking or being too knee-jerk, I think, you know, his, his decision was more to keep the stability of it. So I think it's, you know, it could go a lot of different ways. 
Uh, now that they got shut down, you could sort of look at it differently. But, you know, these guys have overall been really good. And it's worked, like you said, the matchups, the righties and lefties are spaced a certain kind of way so that you can't just bring in Joe Mantiply and just kind of go through all these lefties. Uh, so that's what, that's what they're going to weigh. And, um, but, you know, once again, with these bullpen-type games, you know, you have to think differently. And you, all you're doing is trying to get one out at a time. Yeah. And you might use 12 pitchers, but that's all you want. And then you look up and hopefully you have the W. 27 outs. How do I get all these guys to get me 27 outs? Let's uh, quickly, before we let you go, switch over to the other series. We can't say we've never seen this before because we had the 2019 World Series. We saw where no one could take advantage of home field. And right now, I mean, it's a reality. It's like, can I, can I, it's road field advantage. It's like, I'm on the road. I have the advantage. It's the strangest thing. I mean, what do you make of when I can't win in my home yard and I can't lose wherever I go on the road? Well, that was the Astros season. I mean, they were 39 and 42 at home this year, which was terrible. And they were 51 and 30 on the road. That that was their year. So the whole season, even after the Rangers wiped them out, I was like, they're right where they want to be. They're just good on the road for whatever reason. So, I, I just think it's like very consistent to how these teams have played this year, uh, especially the Astros. They're kind of telling that narrative, and, and that's why uh, they could be in control of this series because of it. So um, that's Houston. You know, they they had that kind of year. So you know, you got two great managers with a lot of institutional knowledge going at it. They're going to use every trick in the book. Uh, they might bring in David Copperfield and try magic. You know, they might try anything. Uh, but they're a lot of fun to watch, and I love watching them especially when Bochi was literally retired and Dusty was on the sidelines before the scandal. And look at what they're doing now. It it speaks to the importance of having great people skills, managerial skills, and institutional knowledge. Uh, That still, still, it still means a lot. I don't care what formulas you figured out or algorithms you figured out or bullpen. uh, It still comes down to having a balance between great information and great people skills. And um, and that's why this series is really fun to watch because it's like two heavyweight boxers going at it. What's the mindset you think right now, Texas, after losing these first two games at home? Well, you know, they still have another one to to just right the ship. They still could be up 3-2 then go back to Houston. So um, they have a really good offense. You know, that, that's their, their explosive. Their bullpen is a weakness. That's, that's their challenge. And if they, anytime I see them only get one inning or a third of an inning out of their starter, I'm like, they're in trouble because they, that ripples and there's no days off. Right. So not at least these three games. So you gotta, you gotta sort of pace yourself and it's hard to do when every out counts. So I I thought that that was a bad sign that the Astros got into their bullpen early because that is their weakness and, and it's a strength for the Astros. Well, I can't tell you during the playoffs, you coming on from Arizona means a lot. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. We're listening and, uh, Arizona's back in the series. You know, if they they lost yesterday, you're thinking, oh, is this thing going to be four game and sweep? But it's not. Hopefully we we got a good series. But thank you. Have a great call today. We appreciate it. And you be well. All right. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. The great Doug Glanville right here on A's Cast Live. How cool is that? All three of these guys, unbelievable. We want to thank Luis Gonzalez, Jeff Blum, and Doug Glanville for all stopping by A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. 
This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.